Return to the Word is made possible by faithful supporters like you. Find out more at returntotheword.com. Welcome to another edition of Return to the Word Radio with Bible teacher Mark Fontecchio. Advancing the message of God's amazing grace through the teaching of God's Word. And now with today's message, here is our teacher. A preacher and a member of his congregation stood by the side of the road and they were taking turns holding up signs that said, the end is near, turn around before it's too late. It wasn't too long until a car drove up. The driver, he saw this sign and he rolled down his window and he yelled out. He said, I just wish you religious nuts would leave us alone. And then he sped up and he drove off and he went around the corner out of sight. Shortly thereafter, you could hear the sound of tires just screeching on the pavement and a big splash. And just then the church member, he looked at the preacher and said, you know, I told you, I told you we should have just put up a sign that said, bridge out. If something is important enough, we try to be careful with what we say and how we say it. And there are times that we do not want to be misunderstood. And in our passage in Hebrews chapter 1, God is telling us that he has been very, very careful, very selective in how he spoke to us. Do you remember the opening words of Hebrews that we looked at last week where it said God who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, what? Has in these last days spoken to us by his son. But for some of the people in the first century, the written revelation of God, it wasn't enough. And this is what the author was warning about. In late December of 1980, in a town, a small town called Langby, Minnesota, a man by the name of Wally Nelson, not to be confused with Willie Nelson, but a man by the name of Wally Nelson, he woke to find the body of a 19-year-old girl named Jean Hilliard. Now, Jean was frozen. I mean, completely frozen, solid like a log on his doorstep. Turns out that she had gotten in an accident and had made her way to the doorstep. And she sat on that doorstep for a full six hours outside. But here's the kicker. The temperature was a full negative 22 degrees Fahrenheit. Her eyes were actually open. She was white like a ghost, frozen, but somehow not dead. Wally brought her to the hospital and the doctors were completely stunned. She was only taking two to three breaths a minute and her heart was only beating about eight times a minute. Her body temperature didn't even register on the thermometer because it was so low. But they revived her with no more damage than a few blistered toes, hardly even any frostbite at all. Well, Jean, she became an instant celebrity. She spoke in churches. Talk shows would fly her around back and forth between L.A. and New York City to share her story. She was known as the Miracle Girl. And once the attention of her drama died down, Jean said the experience didn't really change the trajectory in her life at all. Almost everyone that she knew told her she had been saved by a miracle. So she kept waiting for something dramatic to happen, but her life 
has been completely normal. She got married, she had kids, and she moved to a mid-sized town in central Minnesota where she works at Walmart. Things might have turned out differently, she said, if she could remember the six hours she spent frozen in Nelson's yard. If she would have just seen something dramatic, some sort of vision, perhaps an angel, maybe of heaven. And then she said, it's like I fell asleep and woke up in the hospital. I didn't see a light. I didn't see any of that. It was kind of disappointing. So many people talk about that, and I didn't get anything. Let me ask you, what if the miracle was enough? What if the gift of life was enough? What if living a normal life with ordinary kids in a regular town and working at Walmart is the reason for the miracle? What if we could all just find our identity in Jesus Christ and live for the glory of Christ right where we live, right here, right now? Do we need more? The Hebrew Christians, they certainly wanted more in the first century. They had been given life in Christ, but their attention, it turned to the worship of angels. You see that sort of thing today, don't you? God's revelation to mankind was not enough for them. Verse 5 in your text, it says, For which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you, and again I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Now, what I want you to notice as we look at this text, as we walk through it verse by verse, is that the author is building his case, that the Son is better than the angels, and that these are actually the Psalms that he quotes as we walk through this. Now, he did this because these Hebrew believers needed to see the superiority of Jesus Christ from the Old Testament. And he began by citing two lines that are completely rich with prophecy related to the coming of the Messiah, Jesus the Christ. Because both Psalm 2 and Psalm 89 are key texts from the Old Testament that look forward to a future Davidic king. So the reference in Psalm 2 is to the future Davidic king, Jesus. The nations and rulers of the earth will attempt to take a stand against him one day. So follow the idea. Psalm 2 is a royal coronation psalm. It looks forward to the day when Christ will take possession of his kingdom as king. And so in verse 5, what we actually see in Hebrews when he quotes Psalm 2 in the first part of the verse, we have to recognize that Paul actually quoted those same words in Acts chapter 13. And what did he apply him to? Well, he applied him to the resurrection of Christ. You see, we look at the wording here and think begotten, thinking that it refers to the birth of Christ. That kind of comes into our mind, doesn't it? But it has more here to do with a public declaration, an acknowledgement of who someone is. And that has been the context of the book of Hebrews. Christ finishing his work on the cross, rising from the grave. And then what did we see in the first part of the chapter? Sitting down at the right hand of the Father. It was through the resurrection that the Father demonstrated this in His Son, who will one day take the Davidic throne of Israel. This is such a beautiful text. If you don't get excited about Hebrews 1, I question what's going on in your faith. This is God the Father addressing the Anointed One and declaring the Messiah to be His Son. This took place when the Son was actually exalted after the resurrection. 
And then in the second part of the verse, the author is either pulling from Psalm 89, which is another messianic psalm, or from 2 Samuel 7.14. And he is saying this. He's saying that the Old Testament tells us of thousands of angels, thousands of angels, but God never addressed any of them as his son. God never said to them he would be their father. This is a unique thing to the son. The angels are never promised to be a king. The angels are never promised to rule over the entire earth. See, Jews at this time in history, they taught that angels brought people's requests to God. You've heard that before today in some of the modern religions, don't you? That, that the angels will intercede and bring people's requests to God. Well, they thought that. And this is why the author, he steps up here and he says, Jesus is the one that created the world. He sustains the world. He reveals God's glory, makes God known to mankind, and provided the perfect sacrifice for sin. The angels are just merely created beings not to be worshipped. Hear me on that point. I get tired of seeing people worship angels. They're just created beings, created for a purpose, created to serve God, created to serve his plan. But the Son, he is the one through whom the angels were created. So notice the time marker in verse 6. Learn to look for these things when you study the scriptures. Look for time markers that are in the text. Read it with me. But when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all the angels of God worship him. Unfortunately, some of the translations don't make this as clear as it should be. But the structure of the Greek sentence indicates that we are actually looking to a future event, meaning we are no longer looking at the incarnation. The writer has moved on here to worship of Christ by the angels when? At his second coming. This is what's being addressed in the text. When the king is reigning over the entire earth and restoring his people, the nation of Israel. So don't miss this overall point. Christ is better than the angels, and even the angels are commanded to worship him. So notice with me the writer calls Jesus the firstborn, saying that when the Father brings the firstborn into the world again, the angels will worship him. Firstborn in position, firstborn in rank, in priority. It is to say in the eyes of God the Father, this is who the Son of God is. Now this time the quote is from Psalm 97 and the point is that Christ is better than the angels because the day is coming at the second advent of Christ when Christ returns, when the Father will command the angels to worship the Son because of who he is, the author of their existence. Now listen to the impact this would have had in the first century to the first audience of this book. If they wanted to go back like they were trying to do, if they wanted to go back to the worship of God in the Old Testament, then they should have been doing something. They should have been turning back to the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because it is Christ who created the foundations of the earth. It is Christ who even created these powerful beings known as angels. To not worship the Son for who he is, is to sin against our Creator. Now the contrast comes in verse 7. And of the angels, he says, who makes his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire. This quote is from Psalm 104, teaching that the angels are created beings who serve God. 
But I don't like how a lot of our Bibles translate this, this verse. I don't think it's translated correctly. I don't think verse 7 should be spirits there. The structure of the wording and the context shows us that this should actually be translated winds. So read it with me like this. And of the angels, he says, who makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire? Do you see the parallel thought in the text? You see, the winds are a powerful force in the land of Israel. At times, they can be a cool breeze coming off the Mediterranean Sea that make the dry land of Israel actually a comfortable place to live. But then that wind, it can turn real quick, and it blasts up from Arabia, burning and withering everything in its path. The winds can also pour down the mountain slopes and turn up the waters of the Sea of Galilee. Notice in the second part of the verse, flaming fire, probably a reference to lightning. See, just as God uses the wind, just as God uses the lightning, so does he use his angels to carry out his will. During the total solar eclipse in 2017, do we get any space geeks in the house? I'm like that. Hannah's like that. Mike is kind of like that. Any other space geeks? I'm a space geek. I love this stuff. Well, during the total solar eclipse in 2017 that swept across the United States, a video went viral on the internet of Tom Skilling. He's a meteorologist down in Chicago. Because in the minutes leading up to the eclipse, he made the statement on air, and I've heard other people make this similar statement, that when people actually see an eclipse, they, they are overcome by it. They just cannot believe what they're actually seeing. And they start crying. They start sobbing at it, just overcome with the emotion. But when the big moment happened, his crew had one camera up on the moon and one camera on skilling, and they kind of did that picture-on-picture picture thing. And he found himself just completely choked up. And when asked about it later, listen to what he said. He said, I'm kind of an emotional guy, and it snuck up on me. I was overwhelmed by the enormity of it. It makes you realize we are very, very small, a small part of a huge, huge universe. You see, we talk about the glory of Jesus Christ, but I'm not foolish enough to think that everyone here in this room or that is associated with this church actually believes it. Because I think that some of us may have not experienced for ourselves a personal encounter with Jesus Christ. To those of the redeemed, we know of his glory. We know that we are just a small, small, tiny portion of his creation. And that all the worship and all the honor, it belongs to him and to him, him alone. So watch how we continue starting in verse 8. But to the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. Now, this time the writer is pulling from Psalm 45. Again, another messianic psalm. And this time the teaching is that the Messiah is superior to the angels because he is God and he has an eternal throne. No angel has ever had a throne. No angel has ever had a kingdom or a scepter of authority. And no mere human ruler has had an eternal kingdom of perfect and holy righteousness. But the Son of God, he has all these things. You see, this is actually God the Father addressing God the Son in Psalm 45. 
The messianic king sits upon the throne which endures forever, which means his kingdom will last forever. You know, there's a lot of people today that claim that Jesus never, never said he was God or that the Bible never says that Jesus is God. I think they need to read the book of Hebrews. I really do. Just pick up chapter 1. Just read chapter 1. Because here the Son is directly referred to as God. He is the sovereign king. It is a permanent position. It is forever and ever. And this idea of scepter represents governing power in action, meaning that when Jesus Christ returns, his kingdom will be characterized by absolute righteousness. It is the son who hates lawlessness. It is the son who loves righteousness. And so God the Father is going to anoint God the Son with the oil of gladness. Now what is that about? What is he saying? It means a time of rejoicing when Christ ushers in his kingdom. And notice the little reference at the end of verse 9. It should grab your attention. It says, more than your companions. Now companions could be translated partners or people who walk closely with Christ. This is not angels. These are servants. Angels are servants of God. Instead, the reference here in this text is to believers who will share in his reign in the age to come. Because as we're going to see when we get to chapter 2, Christ is not ashamed to acknowledge us as his brethren. Now, this concept of believers becoming companions with Christ, it's a key idea to the book of Hebrews. We're going to see it over and over again in Hebrews. It refers to those who will participate with Christ in sharing his reign. But let me be very clear because there's a misunderstanding that is out there in Christianity at large today. Don't get the big idea in your head that all you have to do is stamp your ticket to get into heaven to rule and reign with Jesus Christ. That is not true. Reigning with Christ is a reward for the faithful. Those that live godly now, those that live for the Son now, will share in His reign then. And there can be no greater joy for God to see His people walk hand in hand with Him. One of the problems that we have is we are blind to the things that we don't see. We're blind to the things that we don't expect. To prove the point, researchers, how do you like that picture, doodles? Researchers put a clown on a unicycle right in the path of pedestrians, just walking along. Then they asked the people who had walked right on by this clown if they had noticed anything. And everyone saw them except for who? The people on their cell phones. Three out of four people who had been on their phones had not even seen the clown on the unicycle. And they would look back at their astonishment, unable to believe that they'd missed this gigantic clown. They had looked straight at him, but it didn't register. The clown had gone by their path, but not their minds. And I think the same thing happens with God's people. You see, this is how we live sometimes. There is how we should live as the called out people of God. And then there's how we actually live come Monday, come Tuesday, come Wednesday. 
But some of us are so busy living life our way that we never see life Christ's way. We become so focused on all the wrong things in this world that we miss what God is actually wanting from us. We miss what God is actually expecting from us. And we're so locked into our own narrow understanding of our own lives that we miss the challenge from Christ to die to self and to walk hand in hand with the Creator. So watch how we continue with verse 10. And you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain, and they will all grow old like a garment. Like a cloak, you will fold them up, and they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will not fail. Now these three verses actually come to us from Psalm 102 to demonstrate that the Messiah, the Son, is the Creator. And again, these verses from Psalm 102, they refer to Jesus Christ. He is the one who laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of his hands. Jesus stands above his creation. This always reminds me of when years ago, one of the astronauts who had walked on the moon, he was interviewed and he was asked the question, what did you think about as you stood on the moon and you looked back at earth and saw how small it was? And the astronaut replied, I remember how the spacecraft was built by the lowest bidder. You see, we can rejoice that the work of salvation, it didn't go to the lowest bidder, did it? It was performed by the same God who created the foundations of the earth, the architect of the universe. He designed our salvation in him. He brought all of creation out of nothing. The universe declares his power. It declares his glory. But the day is coming, friends, when that same creator is going to bring this fallen creation to an end. And that is what he's saying here in verses 11 and 12. Even creation is going to come to an end. Not by man. Not just through, we need to recycle because we're destroying the earth. God the Son is going to be the one to fold it all up. You know, everything in creation, Solomon said this, everything in creation grows old. And it wears out like old clothing. But the perfect Son of God, He will never, ever end. He's eternal. He had no beginning, and He will have no end. The Lord Jesus Christ, He is the one who will come again to rule from Jerusalem over the nations. Christ will rule over the nations of this earth for a thousand years. And then what is he going to do? Well, the Bible tells us that he is going to burn up this earth and all of the heavens to create a new heaven and a new earth. And even though the earth as we know it will come to a complete end, the sun's rule will continue on. You see, creation will come and go, but the sun will stand the same today forever because he's the same. God does not change. Verses 13 and 14. But to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool? Are they not ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation? This is the final passage that is quoted in this beautiful text, and it comes to us from Psalm 110. It was known even in the times of the Old Testament that Psalm 110 is a messianic psalm. 
Jesus himself quoted it in Matthew 22 and told us directly that David is the one that was used by God to write it. But more than just this, Jesus told us that Psalm 110 shows us that the Messiah is more than just a man. He is so much more than a man. And in it we see the picture of the Messiah exalted to the Father's side, ruling over all his foes. See, we will share in his victory. And what an encouragement this had to be to the Christians in the first century suffering through that persecution. Eventually, every knee will bow to the sun. This could never be said of an angel. No angel has ever been invited to share God's throne. Satan is the only one who has tried, and we all know how that ended. He's already been defeated. So this idea of treating an enemy as a footstool, it comes from a pretty rough image. It's a metaphor that comes from the Old Testament practice of a victorious king, literally placing his foot upon the neck of a conquered king to emphasize his victory. You see, Psalm 110, it depicts the future reign of Jesus Christ when he will reign over his messianic kingdom and all his enemies will be brought into submission. The author of Hebrews is reminding us that the angels are servants. They are not rulers. They are not rulers at all. Sure, Daniel 10 will tell us that they have dominion for a time to battle the forces of darkness. But even in this, they serve God. So instead of thinking of angels as being higher than Christ, we should understand they have been appointed to serve. Appointed to minister to who? To us, to God's people. Those who will one day inherit the salvation promised to us in the coming kingdom of God. The angels have been given this task to serve, to protect us, to strengthen us, so that one day we can obtain our full inheritance with Christ in glory. Now, our inheritance here refers to all that God wants to give his people. You see, if you belong to Jesus Christ, if you are one of his by faith in the blood of Jesus Christ, the son of God who came to take away your sins, you have that salvation right now. You already are justified before God. You've been regenerated into a new life in Christ, but you've not received your inheritance, have you? No, you have not. You haven't been delivered just yet which is the subject in Hebrews. Future tense. This is the future yet to come. You see, we can rest on the promise of a better future because the Son, He is enthroned in heaven until the time of our final salvation. And we can know that Christ has His angels ministering to us now. You don't focus on the angels. You don't make them an object of worship. We should give them no more worship than we give our fellow man, meaning none. You don't worship angels because that glory and that honor belongs to Jesus Christ. But we should look at how they serve and we should let it prove to us more deeply our Savior's love for us. You see, behind the scenes, God is using the angels to work out his purposes for our good. Let that knowledge drive you to a closer walk with him. Let it help you understand his love for you. Rest in the fact that God has spoken directly to us through his word. His words, his thoughts in his word. The word of God, it should captivate us. It should consume us because it tells us of our Savior, our final redemption, and the love of God for us. And while we may rejoice that at times God uses angels behind the scenes to protect us physically from bad things, we should know that only the Son, only the Son, Jesus the Christ, can save us from eternal death. 
And we remember the words of Peter when he wrote that the Old Testament prophets and the angels of God, the angels of God long to look into, to understand the rich salvation that we have in God the Son, the Savior, Jesus the Christ. And Colossians 3 tells us, And whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Jesus Christ. An endurance race, if you've never heard of it, is the world's longest and toughest ultra marathon. It's a grueling race running over 543 miles. That's a long way. 543 miles from Sydney to Melbourne, Australia. Well, back in the year 1983, 150 world-class runners came to Sydney for this event. And on the day of the race, a 61-year-old potato farmer and sheep herder came out by the name of Cliff Young. And he approached this registration table, and he was wearing overalls and galoshes still over his work boots. And he didn't even have his dentures in. I love his reasoning. He said he didn't have his dentures in because he claimed that they rattled when he ran. At first, I wouldn't know. I don't have hair, but I do have teeth. At first, people thought he was there to just watch the race, but he declared his intention to run, and then he requested a number. Well, you see, Cliff had grown up on a farm, a very large farm, without four-wheelers, in fact, without even horses. And when the storms rolled in in Australia there, Cliff headed out to round up 2,000 sheep over a 2,000-acre farm. That's huge. Sometimes he had to run them for two or three days straight just to complete the roundup. Well, they gave him on this particular race, they gave him number 64, but people couldn't believe what they were seeing. They thought it was a complete joke because when the gun went off, the runners, they just all took off and left him behind. Still in his galoshes, still in his overalls. People began to laugh at him because when he started to run, he didn't even run like everyone else. He kind of had this weird shuffle, this, this old man shuffle. And all of Australia was captivated by this story with the live broadcast as they watched this scene unfold. Now, people were calling for someone to step in and stop that crazy old man before he killed himself. Somebody's got to do something. The guy's going to die. Well, five days, 15 hours, and four minutes later, Cliff Young came shuffling across the finish line in Melbourne, winning the ultra marathon. Now, he didn't win by just a couple seconds. It wasn't like he just got there and the next guy was right behind him. The nearest runner was almost 10 hours behind. Well, Australians were stunned. How did this happen? A potato farmer, come on. How did this happen? Everyone knew in that day that in order to run this ultra marathon, runners would need to run for 18 hours straight and then stop and sleep for six hours. And this routine was repeated for five punishing days. But see, no one told Cliff Young this. So he just shuffled along day and night, night and day, without ever stopping to sleep. Well, Cliff... He broke the previous race record by nine hours and became an overnight hero for all of Australia. You see, victory in the Christian life comes through endurance. Because the Christian faith, the Christian life, the life we live out, it's not a hundred yard dash to see how you live just this week. 
It's a marathon to see the character of Christ develop in the mindset of Christ to develop in our lives over this week, this month, this year, and next year. In the short distance race, speed is important. In the long distance race, endurance is what leads to success. You see, in the race of the Christian life, some things are standard for every single one of us in this room, for all believers. As Hebrews 12.1 says, the race is set before us. And sometimes we don't get to choose what race that is. We'd like to. And finishing is winning in the race that is set before you. It's not about beating one another. You're not trying to beat the next person in this room. But each of us must run the race with the gifts and the talents that God has given to us. So against all odds, we run that race. We run to hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. And this is what the author of Hebrews is talking about. He's, he's saying, don't let the world drag you down and don't bother looking at others and don't get discouraged. Just keep your eyes fixed where? Right on Jesus. Run the race that he has set before you until the day that you meet him. Nothing that Christ has begun will remain unfinished. And no promise, no prophecy that he has given us will be left unfulfilled. The final victory belongs to the king. And so the message that he gives to us is press on in the faith toward the prize. Our final redemption, our inheritance in Jesus Christ. And so we end our study this morning with the words of Hebrews 12. Which says, therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Return to the Word Ministries is committed to teaching the full counsel of God's Word and the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more about our ministry, please visit returntotheword.com. Return to the Word is a faith ministry. This means we freely distribute the teaching of the Word of God over the air and online. We do this without charge. If you feel led to support the ministry with a donation to help cover these costs, you may do so on our website, returntotheword.com, or by mailing a donation to Return to the Word, P.O. Box 879-259, Wasilla, Alaska, 99687. Thanks for listening. Pray that the Word of God will be a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path. Join us next time for another edition of Return to the Word.